This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm Amy Brown. It's the third Tuesday of the month, so it's time for our Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents with my regular guests, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, and former State Representative Ralph Chapman. We'll have some other folks joining us a little bit later, and we have a lot to go over today, so let's jump right in. And I should mention, by the way, that we are recording this via Zoom on Monday, July 20th. So a lot of things right now happening leading up to elections 2020. One thing that we haven't talked about at all, and I wanted to just quickly ask both of you about Ralph and Amy, is the potential vice president picks for Joe Biden. Anybody standing out for either of you? It's There's a sort of a short list that has been put out by ABC over the weekend of who they think is in the running still. They're saying he's vetting, among others, uh, Senators Kamala Harris of uh, California, Elizabeth Warren, Massachusetts, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, Representatives Val Demings of Florida, and Karen Bass of California. Also, Susan Rice, who has connections here with Maine, former uh, National Security Advisor for Obama, and he has promised to select a woman and someone who would be ready on day one to be president. He's also getting a lot of encouragement to select a woman of color. So not much specific information out there where he's leaning. What do you all think? I do think that it's very likely to end up being a woman of color, which would really only exclude one of the people on that list, which is Elizabeth Warren. If there's, of course, other places, though, where Warren could end up being part of an administration, uh, certain cabinet positions, or she might prefer just to, you know, stay in the Senate, which is very important and, and uh, could change into Democratic-controlled Senate where she'd have more impact. But I think most important thing are those kinds of criteria where, you know, this is a, Uh, an individual who has, Biden has so much different experience having, he was in the Senate for a long time, he's been vice president, and he really wants a partnership. He wants somebody who's going to add something to uh, the duo that they are, um, and be someone that they, who can, he can work with closely with a certain amount of chemistry and also who really has the competence and expertise so that they could step into the job. Probably of all the ones you mentioned, at least for me, the one I know the least about is this Karen Bass, but she's very interesting. She did have a leadership position in the California legislature. You know, that's a state with 12% of the entire population of the United States. So (laughs) one out of eight Americans is a Californian. So that's, uh, you know, even though it's a, just a, that was a state legislative um, leadership position before coming to Congress, it's not just any state. It's a pretty important state, and, and she has a very interesting background. But I, you know, I guess, I, I guess we'll just sort of have to wait and see. I've, I've thought probably Kamala Harris, but I really, you know, obviously, I don't know. That's, I think, more of a sense of it early on. Um, that she she was someone who could bring a lot to to the ticket, and she's also someone I think that he has had a relationship with in the past. Ralph, do you have any I, thoughts about this? Oh, well, I think the Times uh, really uh, would it would be a good opportunity to to have a, a woman of color because uh, we have not only the pandemic, which has been 
um, uh, something brand new to us, but the, the rise of uh, racial consciousness uh, and the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is something that is, uh, I think, ought to be taken advantage of. Um, that is to say, rather than fight the social changes that are underway, uh, to go with it and to uh, help it along, I think, would be a, a positive step. How much does geography matter? Some people are saying that he should be trying to pick someone from the Midwest to bring along Trump voters. Do you think that that really is a big factor or should be a big factor in his consideration? I think it matters less than it did in the past that our politics is so nationalized these days that it, it has less of an influence than, than it would have um, you know, in previous times. Uh, so I, I don't think it's really quite as important as it, as it used to be. It, maybe for some of the people who are less known, they start out with more of the lead in terms of name recognition in the, for the state that they're from. But um, the, you know, there'll be so much publicity. There's just a few moments really that, is, that there's enormous publicity about a presidential race. And they're the vice presidential pick the conventions and the debates, those get the most publicity. So there will be just enormous amount of publicity about the VP pick once it happens, a lot of backgrounders and information about the person. And, um, you know, that's one of those things that uh, hopefully that a, a campaign has more control over than, than anything else. They're not making a last minute pick. That's usually true, you know, and I think we certainly are seeing that with the Biden campaign is really taking its time and doing a very careful vetting from everything that we've heard. So, I, so that's a long way of answering the question of, about geography. I, I think it matters less than it used to. You agree with that, Ralph, or have an opinion about that at all? Well, yes, there are various types of divisions in the country. Uh, the, there's the urban versus uh, rural uh, division. There's the north versus the south. There's the coast versus the midsection of the country, and, and all with their different characteristics. Um, I think the major element of the campaign that's coming up is going to be the one of unification versus the one of divisiveness. and. Uh, I, I, I suspect that that's the, since that's the primary underlying topic, I think that uh, the in inclusiveness has got to be more inclusive than just picking someone from a particular area of the country. Uh, Susan Rice, there's a uh, really campaign ready photograph of her and uh, Joe Biden in the White House and they're, they look like they're kind of leaning against each other, whispering like they're kind of, they're, they look very serious, but like they're, they look like they're working together on something. It's a good picture if you were gonna have a, a, a photo for a campaign flyer or something, or you know, for their website. Um, and it's, they're both in the White House, so they're showing that they've had that experience. And she has, she's been uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She served on the National Security Council under Bill Clinton, was Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs within the State Department. 
as well as being the National uh, Security Advisor under Obama, but she's also associated with Benghazi. So one of the concerns about her is that it gives another opportunity for Benghazi to be brought up. But do you think that anyone who would be considering voting for Biden in the first place would be put off by the specter of Benghazi being raised yet again? You know, I, I, it will be associated with her probably, you know, that no doubt that would be part of the discussion. Um, it seems like kind of an old issue to me. I don't, I, I don't really know if it's going to, if it would have that much of an impact on the other, you know, I, I, but you know what, and he may, Barnum may really like um, Susan Rice. I'm sure he's worked with her closely over the years, but I, I don't see her as to me, the best kind of candidate in that she has never run for public office. I mean, I think it's, there's a real plus to picking someone who has electoral experience. It's just not really like anything else. Um, and to just thrust someone into the maelstrom of a presidential campaign, which is so intense, it, it's, you may not ever be prepared for it if you've never done it before. But I think coming from um, having an appointed position is really, really different. Any last thoughts about VP picks before we move on? My opinion is that it would have been better to have picked uh, a month or so ago uh, rather than not yet. <laughs> but that's uh, that's because I think it, the uh, I, I think the country is hungry for seeing some leadership, and I think it would have given an opportunity for the VP pick to start working on a campaign. Campaigning and campaigning nowadays is is different than it used to be. So, I would have given them that added advantage. And just a just an opinion. It's of course moot now. Just under a month before the conventions, watching the clock at about in about five minutes, I believe we're going to be joined by either the independent candidates who are hoping to challenge Susan Collins or representatives from their campaigns. The three of them have joined together Max Lynn, Tiffany Bond, and Lisa Savage in issuing a sort of open letter saying that they should all be included in the upcoming debate. So we'll be joined by them. We'll just checking about the upcoming conventions. The Democratic Convention is going to be held in Milwaukee uh, starting August 17th, and the Republican Convention has been moved out of North Carolina because they were going to require some safety public health measures. They got moved to Jacksonville, of all places. Now, Florida is sort of the epicenter of the coronavirus in the country, and they're going to have to take precautions there as well. That one's going to be a week later on August 24th. Why can't these, and, and they're scaling back, the Democratic Convention especially has made note of all of the, um, the amount of scaling back that they're doing and how they're not going to have a lot of the festivities you usually would associate with some of these things. Why can't these things be done online? I know, Amy, you've said before, it's all up to the party. There are no, you know, the parties make the rules for their conventions. There aren't any laws saying they have to be there in person. Why can't they be done online? And are the benefits of firing up the most loyal members of the party as important as the risks of potentially getting your most loyal party members sick or, you know, perhaps even having them die before, well, period, but also before you vote, if you're only thinking in terms of a, uh, as a politician? 
I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of energy that comes from groups of people coming together. There's a lot of connections people make. There's networking. There's the energy of being in a hall with a live audience. All of that is wonderful. But, yeah, in this kind of situation, it, it doesn't seem like it's a good idea to do very much of that at all. You know, I think that what the Democrats are one part of what the Democrats are going to do is they're going to have a few hundred people coming, uh, but that's it. They're not going to have all the events. They're not going to have, they're going to have a lot of th uh, together. They're going to have other things available, panel discussions, you know, a lot of other meetings and things that will be through some kind of uh, Zoom or something like that. But um, they're not going to have very many people together. But I think they want to have some together. And, and then I think they, if, if they're doing that, they'd be doing that in a socially distant way. Ralph, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, this is a time to reinvent ways of doing things. Uh, it, it, the, the pandemic is a, is a crisis and uh, with uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths worldwide. And, and we need to recalibrate uh, the way we the way we behave in all sorts of ways. And so having a convention uh, has a different meaning now than it had uh, last year or the year before. And, and, and I think it's best to realize that and, and look for innovative ways to invent different mechanisms for accomplishing the goals that were originally set for, uh, for the old style convention. Would either one of you go to a convention this year? No, no. <laughs> I would not. No, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah. Well, we have uh, Tiffany Bond is with us now, and we have, uh, I believe, possibly someone from Max Lynn's campaign uh, connecting to audio. So we're going to wait, and Lisa Savage will be back with us. So we're going to uh, give them a chance. Oh, there's Lisa. Going to give them a chance to get all their audio on and get connected. And uh, while they're doing that, Let's see, I will... Uh... Amy, isn't it important that we recognize that the upcoming election is a ranked choice voted election? Yes, that's on our list of things that we'll definitely get to. Uh, all right, so I, I don't know, is this Matt Mc... Yes, it is. Okay. Hi, everyone. Sorry, I'm going to change my name here. Okay, okay. Yeah, it says M-E-H, so I didn't know Meh. if that was like a commentary or... <laughs> no, I... Meh. Oh, and there's Tiffany's on. Okay. So uh, let me just remind listeners, you're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. This is recorded on Monday, July 20th. And my regular guests that you've been hearing from for this election's 2020 edition are former state representative Ralph Chapman and uh, Professor Amy Freed, chair of the political science department at the University of Maine. Joining us now, we have uh, Matt McDonald, who is, are you the campaign manager for Max Lynn? I am the uh, senior campaign advisor, uh, spokesperson, all sorts of hats. <laughs> okay, as well, thank you, as well as uh, independent candidates, Lisa Savage and Tiffany Bond. They have, uh, Lisa Savage and Max Lynn will be on the ballot running against Susan Collins in November, and Tiffany Bond has filed a lawsuit asking for the signature requirements to be waived given that in the middle of her gathering signatures, the pandemic hit, and that has created an issue with getting enough signatures to be on the ballot. The three of them have joined together in issuing an open letter demanding inclusion in any upcoming debates. 
And so let's start there that this is an open letter, correct? Or is it addressed to anyone in particular? Are there, are there any debates scheduled that you've already been excluded from? And Lisa, you were on the, I understand Max Lynn just last week, maybe Thursday or Friday, found that he was going to be on the ballot. Tiffany, yours is being litigated. Lisa, you are definitely going to be on the ballot. So I think- Actually, Amy, um, I don't mean to butt in, but actually we were on, Max was on the ballot in May um, when he, they, the Secretary of State um, validated 4,600 signatures. That was challenged. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, no, we've been, he's been on the, uh, at the end of May, he, we delivered them in April, but because of the, the pandemic, um, you know, we, they, they, they took some time to, to validate them. But they, we, were, we were put on the ballot back in May. Okay. And All then right. it well, was challenged. And right. then it was challenged. Right. So that was going on. So in the meantime, for planning debates, I could see that someone who was planning a debate could try to justify that by saying that uh, only one of the three of you was actually definitely going to be on the ballot. So I'd be interested first to just hear if Lisa, despite the fact that you're on the ballot, you are being excluded, or, or everybody knew at that time that they were planning up until last week that you were definitely going to be on the ballot. Were you being excluded from debates? Thanks for the question, Amy, and thanks for having me on. Thank, thank you, Amy and Ralph and uh, everyone else for being here. Well, you know, we got on the ballot um, with nine, more than 9,000 signatures that we collected on Super Tuesday, so we weren't worried about ballot access. But, of course, we didn't know who the Democratic nominee was going to be. Um, as soon as the primary uh, decided that it would be Sarah Gideon, uh, Sarah Gideon and Susan Collins began exchanging sort of barbs around debates. Both of them had been no-shows for several candidate forums, including one on WERU uh, that we had participated in, and they were sort of challenging each other and doing some kind of trash talk, you know, throw down kind of stuff about debating um, and, and completely ignoring the independent candidates. That to me seems um, not surprising that they would do that. It's to their advantage to make it seem like it's a two-person race and that we don't have ranked choice voting. But of course we do. Channel 6 has indicated to our press coordinator that they intend to include us in the debates. In fact, intend to include all candidates who are on the ballot in the debates. So I believe it's journalists who really are the arbiters of who's included in debates. It's not the opposing candidates. So I'm not too uh, concerned about what um, Sarah Gideon and Susan Collins say about it. I'm more concerned about what the news outlets say about are we going to have free and open debates. The other thing I'm really hopeful of is that we'll have something that, you know, I'm just retiring from 25 years teaching school. One of the things that I really disliked about these televised debates, especially for presidential races, is that they give school uh, students a, a very um, distorted image of what a debate is. The kind of debate that I taught was we, we address a question, we do our research, we come prepared, we give our best points, we listen to the other person's best points, we offer some rebuttals, and in the end, the audience decides kind of who won the debate. I don't think that contests where people sort of get off talking points and insult each other, those don't fit my definition of a debate, so I'm hoping that we have some true debates. Yeah, when I watch them from home, I'm always wishing that someone in the control booth just turned off the microphones and the people ran out of time. It really would be that simple. Tiffany Bond, you seem to be facing the largest uphill battle in terms of access here with this just being litigated. Do you have any sense of when you're going to have a resolution to your court case? 
Um, in the next few weeks. And to be clear, I didn't ask the state to just waive signature requirements entirely. I said, please just hold me to the same standard as the candidates, because the candidates had sort of a regular collection period and their signatures were due on um, the 16th of March. Um, my signatures were due, I needed twice as many and they were, I had about twice as long to collect. And the second period was just not functional. So I said, look, you know, you didn't really make any accommodations. I, I regularly tried to reach out to the state um, and you, you didn't really do anything to help me much. You gave me a few weeks at the end, but it, it was substantially fewer weeks than we'd lost. And there were still uh, a whole bunch of issues, some that none anticipated. I mean, the mail, for example, really slowed down. I have pieces that I'm still getting pieces back and my signatures were turned in on the first and I'm still getting stuff, some of which was postmarked before the first of July that I am still getting in the mail. I, I just have a, a piece that's going to arrive today. So um, it, it's, um, there's a, there was a lot of unanticipated problems. And I don't think that necessarily it was the government's fault. I do think that it was the government's failure to act. So I just asked for them to please, you know, hold me to the same standard as the party candidates. I've actually turned in substantially more signatures than a party candidate would need. I, I turned in over 2,700 signatures and, and party candidates need 2,000. So I just said, hold me to that standard since you didn't make any accommodations and you kind of failed to work with me. Um, it is in the judge's hands now. We did have an intervener that um, there may be responses for, but everything else is turned in. So we wait. So that could set a precedence for independent, making it easier for independent candidates to get on the ballot in the future. If you, if know, you win this. I don't this. know that my lawsuit does. I asked for, I, I used very specific facts and I asked for an incredibly narrow ruling. I didn't say as a rule of thumb, we should have to have the same amount of signatures, though I do believe that, but that's not what I asked for. I said, look, I, this is an extraordinary year. Um, and I tried in good faith to run a good faith campaign the whole time. I regularly communicated with the Secretary of State's office. I reached out to the governor who didn't respond in, in two different formats. Um, and the, the response I got from the, the government was essentially there, the four defendants was, I was expecting something that said, um, we, you know, we, we looked at our process and we think that we were fair, but instead what I got back was, sorry, you didn't work very hard and we don't have records of most of your contacts. So maybe you're not being very forthright and, uh, gosh, if more people liked you, it shouldn't have been a problem. So I wasn't expecting that. I think Amy so. Freed, Professor Amy Freed has a question for you. Uh, I don't have a question. I just wanted to say that, you know, Maine does have a history of including all candidates who have qualified for the ballot to be on the debate. And so, um, and I hope Tiffany does, you know, manage to qualify. I've seen her debate in the past personally and, you know, through the media, she does a great job. But um, as what, what, whoever is on the ballot, certainly that, ha that has been the standard. I mean, that's what happened in uh, 2018, when Tiffany was running against uh, Bruce Poliquin, it certainly happened in the Senate race in 2018. It happened in the first district race. It's just really a long tradition in Maine, at least that as far as I've seen, uh, pretty consistently, maybe there's been a few exceptions for all the candidates who are qualified candidates on the ballot to participate. And I think that's certainly important. To, to uphold that tradition in the, you know, as a democratic kind of, uh, you know, value. And also particularly because this is a ranked choice race. And even though I think most people have the expectation that the top two candidates will end up being the party candidates, Gideon and Collins, 
you never know that at this point, we, we can't guarantee that. And uh, that's, you know, why people adopted ranked choice is so that there would be that kind of capacity. And, you know, the 2018 winner for the U.S. Senate, even though he does caucus with the Democrats, is not a, de what didn't hold the Democratic, you know, line. He's, he's an independent Angus King. So we have to include all the candidates. And I, and I, and I would hope that both um, Gideon and Collins will, you know, support that. Matthew McDonald, on behalf of the uh, Max Lynn campaign, are you feeling that your campaign specifically is being excluded from things, from debates and other interview opportunities? You know, I, I, I actually don't. Um, as Lisa pointed out, I mean, we, Channel 6 has reached out to us, you know, uh, said that they've, uh, they plan on hosting all the candidates. Um, and, of course, we were just in that little bit of a legal hearing and so that kept our, our attention on a lot of things. But uh, I don't see, as, as Amy was pointing out, uh, Maine, you know, it, it would be foreign to Maine politics uh, for them to, ex to exclude the independent candidates. Uh, if you go even, the professor went back to 2018, but if you, I'm thinking even back in 2012, you know, there's a Blaine Richardson's in a, in a, in a, running as an independent. He, they let him go on. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a number of instances in the last 10 years, if not 20 years, mm -hmm. where all the candidates on the ballot were in the, were in the discussions and the debates. And so, so the impetus for this was just to get out ahead of things? Do you want the public to sign on and support if they agree with you? Or? Well, not only, not only that, I mean, we, one of the things Max and I and our team have talked about is how much money is going to be spent in this election. I don't know if you've seen the research numbers. Something, you know, the, the, the highest number I've seen is $60 million in, between the two part, the, you know, the two big guys, the two, two big uh, candidates and their partners, different packs, 60 million. And, and you know, to, 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 you know that, that in itself, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that does is choke out any other voices, whether it be Max or Tiffany or Lisa. And so we need to make sure, and, and this is where ranked choice voting comes in. This is also where platforms like ERU comes in and, and, and kind of political precedent in Maine saying, wait a second, you guys might spend, you know, 1500 years wages of an average Maine family in this election, but there are other voices. And so far, people are listening. Okay. Uh, Professor Freed uh, or former state representative Ralph Chapman, either of you have any other questions? Yeah, I have a question really perhaps mostly for Tiffany, which has to do with the, the, the fairness of the uh, signature collection to get on the ballot. Um, because this has been a difficulty in with um, independent or more minor party candidates in the past as well. Do you think it would be fair if the number of signatures to be collected were a percentage of, in the case of a minor party candidate, the minor party membership, or the, in the case of uh, uh, an independent candidate, the unenrolled membership. In other words, uh, on a percentage basis of the population, uh, would that make it fair or would it be fair if it were a, a specific number of signatures? So um, the, the point that I've tried to make in both of my runs is that 
an average middle-class person should be able to run. And again, an averagely, average resource person should be able to run for office. Though I don't love the signature collection requirement, and if I were personally to change it, I would probably say any candidate should maybe only need like 500, but maybe they personally collect them if we're really trying to show that the candidate themselves have, um, have support. Maybe the candidates should have to personally collect them and it'd be a smaller amount. Um, I think that the 4,000 threshold is high um, and unpleasant, and it would be a five-month-long, 40-hour-a-week job with, with regular, you know, kind of average collection rates, but it's possible. And, you know, why I sued is it, it became not possible for an average resource person to do it. You would either need to be a millionaire or, you know, Lisa is so fortunate to have the support of the Green Party, but even she had ballot access issues because the Green Party couldn't meet the threshold. So um, I, I think that, you know, during regular times, I think it's achievable, although unpleasant. We hit a point where it just wasn't achievable with, with the pandemic. I mean, the, the amount of resources it would have taken, I would have needed either a party or, or to be incredibly wealthy to make it happen. And that, that puts you in a place where you're no longer talking about whether or not it's fair. That becomes candidate suppression. Um, which is just as bad as voter suppression, in my opinion. I do think we should lower the threshold. I don't think we're going to have a flock of people running at running for office because the signature collection component is a fairly big chunk of time, but it's not the only part of running a campaign. So, you know, just that alone to get you on the ballot, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to have a flood of people if we say lowered it to three thousand or made it just fifty percent more, not double. Um, I, I do think that we should really address, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? Are we trying to achieve that we just have bona fide candidates who are interested and qualified to run? Or are we just trying to make it hard so there's not too many? And, and I think that we need to really ask our legislature that question because I don't think it's been asked recently. Amy, Amy Freed, did you have something you wanted to? Yeah, I, I would say that that's a, that's a good um, way of putting it because there's a balance here between how many people are going to be on the ballot, which is going to require more voter attention, the ability to really go look at the particular candidates. If you had 25 people on a ballot, it'd be very hard to have them all on a debate stage or for people to evaluate them properly. Uh, but we also don't want to unduly limit access to the ballot. It's a very valuable piece of political real estate, to put it in crass terms, to actually end up on the ballot. And in the case of this race, there was at one point a more conservative um, alternative to Susan Collins who wanted to run in the Republican primary who was pushed out of the race by the, by the party from at least based on, I don't know anything about it except what I read in the, read in the paper about it. Um, and so it's a good thing to have somebody to Collins is right who at least has a chance now to be on the ballot in the, in the general election, because there's such a range of views, you know? And I think, I know when I talk to colleagues around the country, I'm, I'm proud of the main political system for allowing really that kind of range and now having ranked choice voting so we can have everything from the Green Party to a Maxlin and to have the other candidates in between. And maybe I'm not, I don't know, I mean, it, Matt may see Lynn, describe Lynn in a different way, but I, I do see him as more as the most conservative. And that's certainly a part of the um, Republican Party nationally and also in Maine uh, that 
in a way didn't get a chance to compete at any point previously because of the way that the, the primary worked out. Matthew McDonald, did you want to comment yeah, on that? I, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's good, you know, if you know, it, if you know anything about Max Lin's political history, never the same twice. And so, you know, there's all this assumption that uh, Max is going to run to the right of Susan on all the issues and be like President Trump on all the issues. Um, but these are all assumptions. Um, I think many people will be surprised when we release the policy platforms in a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, and, and, and it'll make for um, important choices. We're, we're, we love ranked choice voting. At Max and I at first and the other team, part of our teams, uh, you know, we, we had some solid discussions about, do we, you know, do we like it? Are we going to follow the other Republicans and yada, yada, yada. But it really just came down to a discussion about ice cream of all things. And I know yesterday or two days ago was National Ice Cream Day. And with ranked choice voting, like when you get that type of ice cream where you have vanilla and chocolate and strawberry, it means we can get all three. And if you like pistachio and, and uh, you know, caramel, you can get that too. Um, and so uh, with Max, you know, I, I, I think it, it's going to be more than just he's to the right of Susan. I believe, you know, when, when our policies do come out, when we release them through our website, it's going to, we're going to, you know, sit down and, and afford the, the main voters uh, something different. And I'm very excited about that. Well, let's give a minute uh, as we're wrapping up here with this segment. Let's give a minute to to the other two candidates, Lisa Savage and Tiffany Bond. Lisa, you had your hand up, so do you want to take a minute with any last thoughts that you have about this, or anything you want to say about your campaign and your platform? Sure. Thanks, Amy. Um, I was going to say that I can tell there's still a great deal of education to be done around ranked choice voting, even though we've had it in Maine and used it a few times. Um, people are still, now that the primary is over, saying things to our campaign like, how dare you run? You're going to be a spoiler. And I, it doesn't anger me. It, it makes me realize, you know, as an educator, more education needs to happen. So um, we've got a daily video out. Today's theme is ranked choice voting. And we also got the comedian Ron Placone uh, to to do a little funny bit on ranked choice voting. Uh, I am very lucky to have the Green Party uh, platform behind me. I did not change my heart, my values, or really my, uh, you know, our issues continue to evolve. We've had our issues up on our website for months now, so people can evaluate where we stand, but we continue to refine them to add on. And I do feel very fortunate to have the support of people that want to see a better world and that realize that if we don't address climate change and we don't address uh, public health urgently and with all our resources that there may not be a future to be worried about. So um, if people believe as I do, I hope they rank me number one. If they have another candidate they prefer, I hope they'll consider ranking me number two. Our website is lisa4main.org and we welcome everyone on the team. So thanks for having me on today. Great. Thanks, Lisa. And if you need any more comedy about ranked choice voting, I have a radio show in which I tried to demonstrate it on the radio a few years ago. Disastrous. <laughs> Not a good format for that, but video definitely helps. And the League of Women Voters has some great videos and demonstrations on how that works. Tiffany Bond, you get the last word. Um, there's also a saucy and pretty entertaining um, knockoff video that was done in Australia about ranked choice voting, if you don't mind a little bit of stepped on Lego language. Um, <laughs> one of the things that really bothered me about the courts filing is it seemed to treat, treat independence like, oh, we got a couple. So, you know, we, we don't really need any more. We're good. We, we got some, it's fine. And I think that you, if you look at 
you know, the policy views, we've got a really nice range here with Matt and Lisa, I, you know, or it's Max, but, you know, Matt on behalf of Max. It's, it's very diverse. And I think why we issued the joint statement, and I think why you see us really pushing back, is not necessarily that we think we'll be excluded from a couple of televised debates. It would be my expectation that we would be included in those debates. I, I thought that the TV stations were sort of the most egalitarian of all the coverage that happened in 2018. My concern is that we've got this really fascinating, interesting race with a different process and great spectrum of candidates. I mean, between the five of us, we've really got a very healthy range of the political views and it's not being covered by the media very much. And that's the real tragedy, I think, in this race is that you see all these articles with just the two party candidates and it's it's not how the race is and it's also not how Maine is. So I think that that's what we're really pushing back on is it is a disservice to Maine, to this election, to not cover that we have fascinating, interesting candidates, and anybody can win. You know, if if Donald Trump has proved anything, it's that anybody can win on a long shot. So um, check check all of us out. I'm at um, bond the number four dot me. Um, I'm really active on Twitter. I answer questions if you ask them, ask them to me there. My handle is at Tiffany Bond. And I also have two digital town hall events per week, one Tuesday evenings, one Saturday mornings. Matthew McDonald, you did not get the, your website in there. Do you want to quickly no, say okay. where we're, you are online? We're just about to launch it. And uh, so it's not up. Uh, everything, this, our social media team is working on that right now. Um, we wanted to make sure everything was secure with the Secretary of State before we went full board. Um, but it, it, um, it'll be maximumforsenate.com once it's up. Okay, and, great. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I just maybe... Uh, okay, you got to go before the other two, so just very quickly. So you don't okay, no, to... I just wanted to just, uh, first of all, re you know, repeat uh, what both Lisa and Tiffany were saying. We have a, uh, such a spread of, of uh, you know, the political thought here. What, I mean, really, what a gift it is for, the, for Maine. You know, not, not a lot, no other state gets to have this. You know, we can have all the flavors and we can vote and we can use ranked choice voting. And very and, noteworthy to see the range of all of you with your political beliefs joining together to sign this letter. Yes. And, and that's, you know, what a benefit. Um, and, I, and I really appreciate Lisa and Tiffany. Uh, they've communicated with myself and, and our campaign. You know, uh, people think, have all sorts of thoughts about what kind of campaign we're going to run. Uh, our campaign is going to be a positive campaign. We have some policy differences between everyone. We're going to stick to our, our policies. And, and I think, um, you know, not to, for us three not to get involved in the, in the multi-million dollar mudslinging will be beneficial to, to the independents. All right. Well, let's leave it there because uh, we're out of time for this segment. But thank you very much for joining us. And you don't have a website yet. Do you know what your website's going it'll to be? be it'll be maxlinforsenate.com. Okay, great. Thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM, and we're back with our regular guests in this election 2020 edition, Professor Amy Freed and former state representative Ralph Chapman. Ralph, right before we went to that segment, you were starting to bring up ranked choice voting. I'm going to let you kick that subject off because there's a lot to be said about that as pertains to this upcoming election in November. Sure, sure. and we just heard one example of an advantage to ranked choice voting, which is we just heard from three candidates who have very different political views, uh, who are collaborating on trying to get exposure to the public to advance their their views in a in a, a civil and pleasant way. Um, 
as contrasted to the non-ranked choice voting system in which it's to one's advantage to be as negative as possible towards one's opponents. And a, I, I'm crediting ranked choice voting for this because on account of ranked choice voting, as, as Lisa said, if you don't want to vote for me as for number one, please vote for me for as your number two choice. In other words, just because you might not, your success in a ranked choice vote is dependent upon appealing to a large number of people, including those who might not prefer you as their first choice. And consequently, it's not to your advantage to try to tear down a person who might be someone's first choice if you might be their second choice. And I, I think we saw a very specific example of how ranked choice voting is helping our electoral system just in the last few minutes uh, with those three candidates. Well, and it's interesting to hear the representative for the Max Ling campaign, because he is a conservative, complimenting that process because the Republicans, for reasons that are unknown to anyone, have decided that somehow ranked choice voting is an anti-Republican thing, which does oh. not, uh, there's no evidence to support that. And even to the extent where right now the Secretary of State's office in Maine this morning picked back up with counting the uh, potential challenger votes and ranked choice voting for the, or the potential challengers for Jared Golden, even though the two that had Dale Crafts, the front runner, had just under 50% of the votes. Adrian Bennett, the former uh, spokesperson, communications director for uh, LePage, and uh, Eric Brakey, former state representative uh, or senator, I think he was a state representative. Anyway, the two of them got fewer votes, are still in play because of ranked choice voting. The ranked choice voting count is still going on because that's what it was promoted as. The voters got to vote that way. But the Adrian Bennett and Eric Brakey have both tried to pull out to make a stand for, against ranked choice voting, even though one of them could potentially become the candidate. And it'll be interesting to see what they actually do if it turns out that they are the ones through ranked choice voting that got the nomination. Will they actually step away because they don't believe in ranked choice voting? It's, yeah, it's not up mm -hmm. to candidates at this point whether they're going to win that election. It was up to the voters. The voters went, they voted. They, vote, they either used ranked choice or they didn't. They could have decided just to vote, bullet vote, vote for one person. But it's not up to them at this point who has that prime pillar piece of, of political real estate, the ballot line. It's up, it's up to the voters. And if two of them were to drop out, you know, it, you know, let's say Adrienne Bennett ends up winning after the ranked choice tally. Even if she dropped out, there's no legal way that you can just stick Dale Crafts in there unless it is declared to be an empty slot that then the party has the right to fill. But it can't just be the two of them drop out and then one person says, oh, I'll take it, I'll take it. Now, I would think if Bennett wins and she decides to drop out that the party would pick Dale Crafts, but that's how it would have to work because you can't just have an election and then have somebody jump in and, and claim that they won the election. It's, you know, it's up to the voters that, to use the process established under the law. If they don't have to participate if they don't want to. They can just only vote for one person. No one has to rank all three. Exactly, exactly. And and it is, you know, I mean, I've, I, I have been a little uh, bothered by how partisan it's become because ranked choice voting has been used over 100 years in Australia. 
it is not something that tends to benefit one side or another in terms of liberal, conservative, whatever. But I know we have this whole history in Maine because uh, a lot, a lot, there was a lot of discussion of it after the page one. And I think that's how they see it. And plus the Poliquin example, you know, made it even more disliked. Um, I would agree but with uh, what Lisa Savage said earlier, that there could be more education about this because I had several people say to me, this was actually before the vote last Tuesday, that just based on the polling that was out about the second district, what if no one wins a majority because there's the three of them and a lot of people don't rank? And so what's going to happen? And I had to go through and explain that if you still would have the situation with three people where the last person is excluded from the next tally, and then you see how many, you know, did pick someone else, the supporters for that third place candidate, and you redistribute however many there are, and then you have a new denominator in the fraction, and you have a majority of that. So there's always going to be a majority, but it's going to be a majority of a different group, just like there is if you have a uh, sort of the more typical runoff election rather than instant runoff, where the typical runoff would be you have an election and then maybe like two weeks or a month later, you have the ability of people to come back and vote a second time. You never have the same exact number of people voting between the first and the second. It's usually fewer people the second time um, with that kind of runoff. And the same thing is true with ranked choice. And I, I think it might be time for another round of education about it. And I also think that nationally, there's very little understanding about <laughs> how this is being going to be used in Maine. Because I talk to national reporters probably weekly, and I tell all of them, you know, Maine has ranked choice voting, and that could have an impact on uh, what happens. And most of their questions are about the U.S. Senate race. Well, and also we'll be the first state in the country using it in the presidential elections in the fall because the Republicans lost their latest challenge also last week that was announced. They didn't have enough signatures. They had, they, there, there's right, there were they a whole just, set of problems with right. the signatures that they submitted. Right. So yeah, some of them were found to not be registered voters. Some of them had signed more than one petition, but do they, they can go back to the drawing board with that again, but not in time for the November elections. Is that correct? I, they cannot bring this people's veto at this point because it's too, unless this somehow they manage to get the signatures to be qualified. Like the court says, no, these shouldn't have been disqualified. People's veto, which is what they were trying to do, they cannot do anymore because that has to be, the signatures have to go in a certain number of days after the end of the legislative session. And it's too long now. So they could bring they could bring another ballot initiative, but that that wouldn't be for this fall. Okay, I want to quickly before we run out of time today, also get your impression. And you may be the first one that wants to jump in on this one, Ralph Chapman, former state representative. Of what's happening with the state legislature? They uh, last week, I believe it was the the Democrats put out the Democratic leadership put out a poll asking the Republicans if they felt comfortable coming back and the legislature was going to meet uh, in the Augusta Civic Center where there'd be uh, spacing would be easier to do. They'd come back in August and uh, apparently just deal with things that were really pressing matters that needed to be dealt with in a shorter session. And all but, I believe it was 
three or four Republicans refused to even respond to the poll? Uh, you have it just slightly off, Amy, that the polling is done by the party leadership for their caucus members per the constitution of the state. And this has to do with how do you call the legislature back into a special session? And there are a couple of ways. One way is the governor can call the legislature back in. Uh, the governor is not choosing to do so as yet. The other way is for the legislature to call themselves back in, but to do so, they need a majority vote of each caucus to be able to do so. Uh, by each caucus, I mean each uh, party caucus, not, not the caucuses within the two houses, the House and Senate, two chambers of the, uh, of the legislature. But in other words, all of the Republicans in the House and Senate are the Republican caucus, all the Democrats in the House and Senate are the Democratic caucus. And when I was there, uh, all of the Green Party members, which was Representative Henry Bear and myself uh, in both the House and Senate, were a third caucus. And in order for the legislature to call a special session requires a majority vote of each of those caucuses. Uh, that, um, it, at the present time, there are only two parties represented in the Maine's legislature. So it's only a polling that has to happen by the Republican leadership of the Republican caucus and by the Democratic leadership of the Democratic caucus. And those votes determine whether the legislature is reconvened. As I say, uh, it, the, the, the Republicans appear to be trying to force uh, limitations on what types of legislation will be brought to bear when, when they reconvene. And so as a pressure, political pressure tactic is refusing apparently to agree to come back into a special session. Of course, there's a question as to whether once the legislature reconvenes, it can't be prohibited from doing whatever it wants to do. So mm. to me, that's not a very good argument. Uh, that is to say, it, it's not an argument that can be enforced. At the same time, if the Republicans feel that uh, anytime they come back into uh, session, uh, it's going to go badly for them and they choose not to, uh, the governor could call them back into session regardless of this polling that happens within the legislature. So that, that's just how the system is, is working. Now, when I was there, uh, there's another side story, which I don't think we need to go into at the moment, but uh, uh, a, a very dark side underbelly of the process was, was put forward uh, to keep my vote from counting as to whether or not we want to do a, a, a special session. Hmm. And you were an independent? At, when you were an independent? No, I was a Green member at the time. Henry Bear and I were the two Green Party members. And actually, since we needed a majority of us to agree to a special session, either one of us had, in essence, a controlling vote for whether the legislature would come back into session. 
however, uh, there was some activity that went to undermine that. Uh, and and I, uh, I guess at the moment, um, I, I mean, I, I'm happy to discuss it, but it, it is in the past and it brings up some very uh, unsavory aspects of how the legislative process works. Can you, can you, I know Amy wants to jump in here. I'd like to, if you could though, just in this, give us a, any kind of, um, if we don't have time to get into the whole story today, hopefully we will at some point, but in just a couple of minutes, is there a sort of a snapshot of any lessons you can take from that for what might be happening today? And then I also want to give Amy a chance to uh, weigh in on this as well. Well, the lesson is that the parties, I have, in my opinion, too much power. And you mentioned the Republicans not liking ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting clearly uh, takes power away from the major parties. The Democrats also worked very hard, in fact, eliminated ranked choice voting during the special session that was called. Uh, I did agree to it uh, at the time. Um, it was a very difficult choice that I made to do so because I knew that the special sessions are when a lot of skullduggery can happen in the legislature and did. And it was a time when ranked choice voting was eliminated by the democratically controlled legislature at the time. So um, the Republicans differ from the Democrats on their opposition to ranked choice voting only in that the Republicans are explicit about it and the Democrats are hypocritical about it. The Democrat, I'm talking about the state house leadership, not the party leadership, which publicly was in favor of ranked choice voting. But the state house leadership had to flip 15 caucus member votes in order to get rid of it. And that was an underreported story uh, because uh -huh. it happened during a special session and happened yeah. at night. And, you know, it, 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 it was filled with procedural things that made it messy. And so it was not well understood. Um, well, we have just about three minutes left. So, uh, Amy, a lot there to weigh in on. I'll yeah. let you decide where to start. Well, uh, yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a good point about ranked choice, uh, where it isn't as clear cut as a lot of times we, ex we express it. Uh, one of the things that was really interesting to me uh, that Ralph said that, that I think is very important to keep in mind is that, is that the legislature probably can't be limited in what it's doing if it comes back. Um, and a lot of different things could happen. Um, I view the whole discussion about this, you know, through somewhat of a political lens, in particular thinking about how it plays with the Senate race, because, um, you know, Sarah Gideon obviously is the Speaker of the House. And before the legislature, uh, you know, ended, they did pass some things related to COVID, uh, you know, they had, a, they had a package, not a huge amount of things, but they passed some things. Um, and then, you know, they went out and then now you have a message from the Collins campaign that Gideon has basically gone on vacation and isn't, doesn't care about what's going on with COVID, which, you know, I'm sure she's doing some other things that we're not necessarily seeing publicly, but that's been their message. And then now you have Republicans in the legislature are blocking them returning and it just complicates that message. You know, I mean, from the Gideon side, they're saying, well, you're you've been saying we can't, you know, we shouldn't 
you know, Gideon hasn't been doing anything. They let the legislature convene, you know, go out and now, but look at what's going on now. So I think it's, I think it's got to be, if anybody is following this out in the main public, and it's always hard to know how much these kind of machinations people are following, it's got to be incredibly confusing. You know, it makes for really muddled messages. And uh, you don't know how much is politics on either side of what they're doing. Ralph probably has more of a sense of it because he's been more on the inside of these things and can follow some of the details you know, in a way that, like, even though I'm a political scientist, I can't and in, in, in quite understand everything that's going on. But I do see it as part of this kind of political back and forth between the Collins campaign and Gideon. And then now it's like, what is going on? Because, you know, and, and Troy Jackson, the Senate president is saying to the Collins campaign, I've seen him quoted as saying, you know, we have to, we, you know, you, you said that Gideon's not doing anything, but you're not letting us come back. So there's the politics there. Oh, and so much to go into. So much for next time. And <laughs> this is a time when people are completely overwhelmed. I mean, with so many other things going on, such a uh, historically important election coming up and so many, so many Piece, nuanced bits of it that you're describing there and so much more. And uh, we'll just keep talking about it and trying to do the best we can from this end. But that is all we have time for today. Thanks for joining me again, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at University of Maine, and former State Representative Ralph Chapman. I'm Amy Brown. Join me for Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture on the first and third Tuesdays of each month at four o'clock in this third Tuesday edition with these two special guests is dedicated to our elections 2020 coverage. You can reach me at news at weru.org with any questions, comments, or feedback and listen to or download our archive shows at weru.org and on the WERU app. Stay tuned for less talk about it with Patricia McLean coming up next here on Community Radio, WERU-FM.